David Cameron was leader of Britain's Conservative Party from 2005 to 2016 and Prime Minister from 2010 to 2016. In this conversation, David and I discuss the influence of history on decision-making at the top. David, you were taught history by two very well-known historians, Michael Kidson and Vernon Bogdanor. Um, what did they teach you? What uh, did you take away from them? I think the most important thing was just um, Michael Kidson just brought it to life. I mean, he was this extraordinary inspirational teacher who could inspire you know, kids at the bottom of the class, as well as the ones at the top. Um, it, very unorthodox. I mean, today he'd be struck off immediately. He had a block of wood on his desk, which he'd throw at your head if you weren't concentrating. But the, <laughs> the main thing was that when he described, particularly the sort of battles between Gladstone and Israeli, you felt that he was in the room. And actually, he loved Gladstone so much that when he read the end of Magnus's biography, um, the sort of epitaph. He, by the time he shut the book, he had tears streaming down his face. So he made you love it. He made you interested in it. He put you in the room with those uh, leaders. Vernon was great because, you know, he'd written so many good books about British politics and government um, that you always felt the phone was about to ring and it would be the palace on saying, we've got a hung parliament, Vernon, what do we do next? So you, <laughs> it was really spoiling to have two such great teachers. And it, it gave me a sort of love of, of history, particularly sort of modern history, and meant that, you know, when you're in politics, you think a lot about it. And Michael Kidson also thought that Disraeli was a charlatan, didn't he? Absolutely complete charlatan. He very kindly in his will, he, le he, had a, a, he, he left me his first edition of Magnus and a sort of statuette of Gladstone and a sort of Victorian uh, sort of ale mug that celebrated guys. I mean, he was, you know, he was obsessed and he did. He absolutely thought that Disraeli was a charlatan. Um, and so he also, as you say in your autobiography uh, for the record, um, you say that he was a believer in the great man view of history, as opposed to the T.S. Eliot's idea of vast impersonal forces mm. um, ruling history. Now, you are, of course, in a perfect position uh, to, to let us know from your premiership how much of it is history is great man and how much of it is vast impersonal forces. I think I still buy the kids an argument that, you know, the decisions that people make in office and in power really matter and decisions can go one way or another way and there are a lot of circumstances you have to understand. But I'd also say there are some sort of deep, when you look back, uh, even at relatively recent politics, you know, there's some quite deep forces at work. I mean, I think if you take my time in office, you know, the, the, the early parts of the 21st century are so shaped by uh, the attack on the Twin Towers, by some of the failures of globalization, by uh, the financial crash, by the war in Ukraine. You know, these sort of big seismic events, have, you know, do affect COVID. Um, so I, I think it's a mixture of the two. Kidson not only believed in the great man theory of history, he also was a great believer that, you know, after the end of uh, Lloyd George, we had a sort of, he believed in the pygmy theory, that after the great men came these, these terrible... Churchill, um, he allowed Churchill, didn't he, as he a great Churchill. man, but other, other than that, there was absolutely nobody. Uh, <laughs> um, what, well, what do you think about that theory? I, 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 I think, I, I'm not sure that is right, actually. I think, again, circumstances, I think, you know, with the great debates about um, for instance, appeasement in the 30s. Um, look, Churchill was right and the appeasers were wrong. I agree with that. But you've got to understand some of the forces at work um, in, 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 in politics and across the world. 
Um, so I think you've got to look at both both sets of circumstances. And um, when you um, between school and university, you worked for Tim Rathbone in the House of Commons, and so you spent a lot of time in the House of Commons and the House of Lords and this extraordinary uh, architectural and historical museum. Essentially, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places in in the country. That must have rubbed off on you personally, the idea that you were surrounded by history. What are the advantages and the disadvantages of having our lawmakers essentially living in a museum? It's, it totally does affect you. I remember that, you know, having sort of studied history, and when you walk into the central lobby of the House of Commons, and there are the statues of all the great figures that you've been studying in history. They surround you every room you go into. There's another portrait, another bust, another a piece of history. And, and also when you're watching debates, you know, I was, there was still sort of quite, what I thought of as quite historical figures as sort of Ted Heath and Enoch Powell and Michael Foote were all still, you know, sitting on the green benches. Uh, Tony Benn, I remember, you know, so, so you're very- You saw Harold Macmillan as well, didn't you? Give his- uh... I did, I saw Harold Macmillan speaking in the Lords the first time he spoke after he got his, his period. So you're very affected by that. I think it has, a, generally has a good impact because I think it helps you to think that what you're doing matters and that there's a historical context. There's important things that went before. I actually found out I've just got back from going to Chequers because I was asked back to go and see some of the people that work there. And I remember that when you sit in Chequers, it, you know, it's an incredible privilege to be there, but you are affected by the history of it. And hopefully it has helped you to think um, you know, higher thoughts about what you're trying to achieve rather than just the sort of, you know, the basics of getting on in politics and, and, and making sure you win this by-election or deal with that crisis or the rest of it. it. Elevate. You look, you sit in that study, you look down that avenue of trees that, um, that Churchill had planted and you think of who sat there before and hopefully it makes you, you concentrate on the enormity of the job and the decisions you're trying to make. So on the whole, I think it's a helpful thing. Is there a moment in your own premiership when you specifically noted at the time the, the past was operating on your decision making, either as a warning or as a, a beacon? Well, I suppose one of the first things I had to do, which was to respond to the Bloody Sunday inquiry, the Savile inquiry, um, which you knew was a, a, a very important moment in our history and the history of um, Britain and, and United Kingdom, Northern Ireland and the Republic and everything else. And I was sort of fortunate in that my, the other great history teacher I had was a man called Dr. Andrew Gailey. I know Andrew, yeah. Um, yeah. Who was from Northern Ireland and who wrote extensively about Northern Irish politics. And I think it's true to say that often British people are rather badly informed about Irish politics, whereas actually the Irish grew up learning a lot of British history as well as Irish history. And I think that helped, and I did realise at that moment, um, you know, how important and how far back uh, this story stretched, obviously not just to Bloody Sunday, but to all the issues and problems um, before that. So definitely, I, I that was a moment when you felt, not I wouldn't say the hand of history was on your shoulder, um, but you did <laughs> think about the historical context in which you were acting. How about in the Benghazi crisis? There must have been lots of historical parallels of, about what Britain, you know, had done in the past. Yes. I mean, fun of it wasn't so much... Libyan history, although actually my um, great uncle won two medals in the war in the desert at the Battle of El Gubi, which is still celebrated by his regiment every year. It wasn't that the history I think that affected me and particularly my sort of lead advisor, Ed Llewellyn, was, you know, people thought 
well, surely you're, you're looking back to the dangers of intervention in the Iraq war. And actually we were much more affected in our generation by what had happened or rather what hadn't happened as it were at Srebrenica and also in terms of the Rwandan genocide. So I think you're, all politicians are a product of the era in which they grow up. Um, and of course, you've got to try and draw lessons from all bits of that history, good and bad. But I'd say that you know, my generation, our generation, we're the same age. I think we were profoundly affected by the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, the, that great moment. I mean, that was when I was sort of coming of age politically and it was so exciting and it really affects your thinking. And then I think there are certain moments like the collapse of Yugoslavia and the terrible things that happened uh, at Treblinka and the Rwanda genocide that I think particularly were preying on my mind as I thought, well, what's the right thing to do in Libya? Much more than the Iraq issue. Yes, yes, no, I completely agree. Um, relations with the chiefs of staff are another very interesting thing, which has a lot of historical parallels, doesn't it? I mean, I've written obviously about this with Churchill and uh, Alan Brooke and so on. Uh, did you feel the hand of history on your shoulder in your relations with them? I definitely, you're, you're, everyone thinks about, um, well, I hope I certainly thought about um, how Churchill handled the chiefs of staff and the debates and arguments. and. Uh, it was important because particularly with the Libya conflict, I soon found out that, you know, it's not enough for the Prime Minister to just sort of set the strategy, which is what they want. I mean, the Chief of Staff want the Prime Minister to set the strategy and then just leave them to get on with all the details. That is That doesn't work. Uh, as I put it in my book, you know, the Prime Minister needs a long screwdriver. You've got to reach into the system and make sure that everything is working in the way that you want it to work. Um, and uh, so the Churchill example was important. I also made a small reform, which I think was important. As someone who hadn't served in the military or had only served in the Eton Rifles, which I don't think really um, <laughs> Makes a good song, but that's about I it. I was the first Prime Minister <laughs> to appoint a military advisor to sit in Downing Street with me, because I think it's important that you have some advice to help you challenge and take on the chiefs and the official advice that you're getting. And I think that was an important reform, and I hope helped, uh, you know, inform policy towards um, dealing with ISIS and what happened in Iraq and Syria, uh, with the fight against ISIS, with what happened uh, in Libya and, and elsewhere. Which of the um, world leaders' statecraft uh, impressed you in particular, the ones who you had to deal with um, in particular, and also which ones had a sense of history, and did the two overlap? I think... All, all, all of them had a sense of history. Um, I suppose the person with the greatest sort of obsession with history was Putin, because I remember inviting him to Downing Street to, uh, we were awarding the Arctic Convoy medals to a group of people who should have been given medals in my view, because the Arctic Convoys were different from the Atlantic Convoys. And I invited Putin to come and give them a medal as well. And I remember him being particularly moved because he, you know, he, he said, no one understands how much I care about the role of the Soviet Union in the war and defeating Nazism. And this is such a pleasure and all the rest of it. But as we know, his statecraft is truly ghastly and he's, um, you know, responsible for the most appalling amount of bloodshed and disaster on the continent of Europe. But if you ask me- hey, Hang on one second. In your autobiography, you have a story about uh, mentioning Yelta and Kiev to him. Uh, do, you want yes. to, do you want to tell that? Well, that is true. I mean, so I remember one, it was one of the first times I met him and I pointed out that I'd, to break the ice, that I'd travelled extensively across his country. And of course, I was harking back to 
uh, my year between school and university, when I went on the Trans-Siberian Railway, so I went to the Kabarovsk and Irkutsk and then Moscow, and then I went to what was then Leningrad. And then, of course, I was on a roll. And so I said, and then I went on to um, Yalta and Kiev without thinking. And of course, he said, but Yalta and Kiev are no longer in my country. And I, when he said that, the look of pain in his eyes, I could see that, um, you know, just how much this had uh, affected him. But in terms of the question about statecraft, in terms of people who were, were effective, um, I don't think there's any one person who I sort of thought had it all, but um, there's no doubt Angela Merkel was a superb negotiator. She was very good with people. She was very good at understanding, you know, in the G20 or in the G8 or in NATO, she was always very good at working out what everyone else's positions and problems and issues were. She, she, she brought immense sort of understanding and skill at that. I thought Obama was a, a brilliant analyzer of situations. Um, you know, if you asked him what, what we should do next to deal with ISIS or to deal with the problem of Yemen, the analysis was fantastic. But I think in some ways he was almost constrained by history in that he so much wanted not to do anything that looked like Iraq again, that I think we didn't do enough um, to uh, help the legitimate um, opposition in, in Syria. And I think he was, although he did, you know, make the Libyan operation possible, he was very much, as he put it, leading from behind. So, but his, his actual understanding of international affairs uh, and analysis was, was very good. One person that impressed me a lot just because of his vision although I don't agree with everything he's done, um, is Prime Minister Modi. He's one of the most sort of dedicated to um, trying to solve the problems in his country and the scale of his vision and some of the things he's tried to achieve um, in, in, in India, I think has been pretty remarkable. So he was, he was always very interesting to meet with and listen to about the scale of his ambition and, and some of which has actually happened. Nicholas Sarkozy. Well, we had a stormy relationship, um, uh, incredibly positive in some ways. We intervened together in Libya. Uh, we became personally quite, quite close. But on European issues, we had the most fantastic rows because, um, you know, he found the, the British desire to be both in and out of the EU, in the, in the single market, in for trade, in for cooperation, but out of the single currency, out of the no borders in my case, getting us out of ever closer union. He found this infuriating. Um, and so we did have frequent um, arguments. I think the job of being president of France is extremely difficult because you're being asked to be both head of state and have this symbolic role to bring the country together. And yet you're also the country's leading politician and, and pugilist. And I think it is, it's, it's a very, very difficult job. And um, uh, only makes me more grateful that we're in a constitutional monarchy and you don't have to worry about all those things as well. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get on to uh, that later on as well. Um, uh, tell us, uh, this is obviously the, um, the right time, just uh, a few days after his funeral, about uh, Shinzo Abe. Well, he was remarkable because, um, you know, Japan had had this history of having quite a lot of quite short-term prime ministers. Um, and suddenly along with, and also tending to follow a quite similar agenda and not to be particularly active on the regional and global stage. And suddenly along comes Shinzo, who uh, is in a very different mold, much more extrovert, stays in office for a long time, has quite a bold and radical um, approach to 
um, the Japanese economic issues, and also becomes a very strong regional leader in terms of standing up to uh, Chinese aggressive behavior, and really, you know, coining that whole concept of sort of Indo-Pacific um, security that he he did so much to to prioritize. See, so he was a sort of he was a big man. Um, he was a big figure. And loomed very large, and, and I think did a great job. Uh, I always, my my team and I always used to to, we were rather jealous of his three arrows. We thought it was great to invent your own economic doctrine of your. I mean, all it was was, you know, fiscal policy, what you do with tax and spending, monetary policy to make sure you got a policy that encourages a growth, and then supply side reform. Those were his three arrows. But how much better do three arrows sound than monetary, fiscal, and supply side reform? <laughs> I think we're all kicking ourselves, thinking, I wish I'd come up. You know, we had Robin Hood. We should have come up with the arrow. If you try in England to come up with a three arrows strategy, I assure you, it would... <laughs> we laughed out of court, I know. <laughs> You'd be boomerang very, very quickly on you. Uh, you mentioned China, um, and uh, with regard to history, tell us the story about the poppies uh, in November 2010, because that does show how historically minded... Um, President Xi and the Chinese people are. Yeah, well, it's a story about it's a story that shows how much the Chinese um, care about the last two centuries of of of, of history. Um, I'm going to China. I've just um, become prime minister. It's a visit. We're going to the Great Hall of the People to meet with um, the premier and the, the the president and the premier, and the Chinese. Um, diplomatic staff say you can't go wearing those poppies it was just before november the 11th so uh, you know as a member of parliament you know, it's absolutely obligatory and you want to wear a poppy for the two weeks running up to that uh, momentous commemoration and they said if you wear those poppies you can't come in and i said well, well why is this and they said well because it reminds us of the opium trade and reminds us of what happened with the uh, opening up of, of of hong kong and the poppy trade and all the rest of it and uh, our ambassador, I remember, sort of sat me down and said, well, I think you're going to have to give in. You know, we can't stop. We must have this visit go ahead. It would be absolutely terrible if you went home having not met the premier. And uh, I said, we just can't do that. Um, you know, this is very important and they should understand. It's got nothing to do with the opium trade. This is to do with Flanders fields and commemorating those that have given their lives in the service of the country. So we stood firm and the Chinese did back down. But it was a sort of interesting example, yes, of their desire to try and make you march to their tune but also I think it did demonstrate a bit that uh, what they see as sort of centuries of hurt when China was opened up and exploited and all the rest of it that that still looms very large in their in their politics to them it's to them the history and the the, the recent history 150 year history and today's politics are inseparable and how far down that route should we be going, you know, to to accommodate that? Is, is it uh, something that we should be accepting and understanding, of course, but also, in a sense, kowtow to? Or should we sort of refuse to take off the poppy and, and be tougher? Well, you should refuse to take off the poppy, as I did. Um, I think the first thing is worth saying that you're trying to understand where your interlocutor is coming from and their history and their politics, I think is incredibly important. And I don't think we're always um, very good at that. It doesn't mean that you have to change your policy or your approach, but it's just a good place to start. Why do the Chinese feel so strongly about you know, the variety of issues in, in front of us? Trying to understand your opponent is vital. 
is not then about kowtowing. It's trying to work out, can we, as the Chinese would put it, have a relationship based on tolerance and mutual understanding? And, and I would often throw back that back to them and say, well, you always want um, you know, mutual understanding and, and toleration of each other's political systems. What is source for the Chinese goose would be source for the British gander. Uh, you visited Ukraine recently, driving a lorry of uh, supplies there. Uh, how do you think history will see that war? I think that, I mean, again, this was a moment when historical lessons, I, I thought, were incredibly important. Um, I mean, my involvement really goes back to 2008, uh, when Putin um, really takes a slice of Georgia. And I took a very strong stance on that. I flew to Tbilisi. I met with President Saakashvili. I said that, you know, we must not appease this. There's got to be consequences. And the problem is there weren't consequences for Putin. And so, generally speaking, the approach British prime minister should take is to learn from history and that the redrawing of boundaries in Europe by force is a very, very bad thing and should not be allowed to stand. Um, so I think that how history will, I mean, obviously we, we're living through it at the moment, but the response the UK has made, I would argue both from 2014 and since February this year has been very strong. We have led the way in training Ukrainian soldiers in providing them with equipment. That's obviously been stepped up since February, but it started back in, in 2014. Um, and so I think that the way that Britain has listened to and worked with the Poles and the Balts and the others who feel the pressure from a resurgent and an aggressive Russia, uh, I think has been all to the good. We've just had the Queen's funeral. Um... And you say in your autobiography at the time of Kate and William's um, wedding that it could have happened any time in the last 10 centuries and wouldn't have looked that different. That's obviously even more true of the, of the funeral, isn't it? Um, what, uh, and, all, and of course, I, I saw from the TV that you were, of course, present at the Accession Council, which has never been televised uh, before. Uh, what, uh, what do you think your abiding memories of the, uh, of the funeral will be? And how do they fit into this idea of uh, things not changing over 10 centuries? Well, funny enough, I mean, I, I obviously had a, 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 an amazing seat in Westminster Abbey. And it, it was, you felt you were at an event that might have looked very similar hundreds certainly decades, but even maybe hundreds of years ago. And the Accession Council itself, again, was fascinating because, as you say, it hadn't been televised, but this is something that has happened down the ages, the Privy Council um, gathering and, and, and ending up with, with God Save the King. Um, so those will be very strong memories, but funny enough, this will sound odd. Um, having been to the incredible service and had such an amazing bird's eye view, getting back home and switching on the television and seeing the way the, the brilliance of the televising of um, the, the, the Queen's procession to Windsor, and particularly, I thought, actually, um, up the, the, the mile uh, to, to Windsor Castle was, was incredibly moving. So it was sort of odd having had this great seat in the Abbey, but then to, you know, it was at home watching it and the lone piper and everything when, when one felt the sort of deepest grief, really. You're autobiography uh, is entitled For the Record. Now that implies, doesn't it, that it's written at least in part for historians, uh, as opposed to just, um, you know, modern people today and the general reader. Does it matter to you how history sees you? Yes, of course it does, because, you know, you make a lot of arguments in, in politics. Um, in my case, arguments about the 
reform of the Conservative Party, about the importance of turning a blue party more green, uh, about social policy, was that economic policy, arguments about Europe, arguments about the right approach to deal with the economy after the crash and, and the importance of sound economic um, fundamentals and all the rest of it. These are arguments you want to win and go on winning. And so um, I, I think for the record, I, I was struggling with the title. It just seemed to me, you know, you have a duty after you've been prime minister to write down what you thought and why you thought it and what you think about it now and to try and be as candid as possible. And I think it is a fairly candid um, book. And, and I think, I hope it will help. I mean, I don't expect every historian would agree with all my conclusions, but I hope it will give them a kind of <laughs> what I thought and why and my way of seeing it. And then, and, and if you've got that, that's a start that then people can um, depart from. But yes, it matters. The arguments you make are ones you want to, 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 to go on um, succeeding in. Although Michael Kidson uh, thought that Disraeli was a charlatan, you obviously don't. You 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 write about him in a positive way, uh, especially with regard to um, his uh, his legalising of trade unions and so on. Then there's Arthur Balfour and uh, Rab Butler who introduced free um, secondary education. Churchill, of course, endorsed the NHS. Uh, Harold Macmillan built houses. Um, and uh, Margaret Thatcher um, was the first to spot climate change. Tell me about the history of the Tory party and the way that that has affected your politics. Well, I think that what I admired in Disraeli was the fact that he did bring forward important uh, sort of social and economic reforms um, and showed that the Conservative Party could be a modernizing and relevant force in a, in a changing world. Where I didn't like Disraeli is I think actually his, his you know, I think Peel was right about the Corn Laws and took the brave decision and, uh, you know, suffered accordingly. So, I mean, I, I, I totally understand and agree with a lot of the arguments about the sort of charlatanness of Disraeli. But nonetheless, you know, as a social and economic reformer, the things he did to to modernize the Conservative Party, make it relevant and important. And, and I, I think Conservatives, I did draw a lot of strength from that because it seemed to me when I took over in 2005, we had become slightly the, the economics party. We didn't have enough to say about how you apply our principles to things like improving education or healthcare or how you tackle deep and entrenched poverty. How do you turn the, the, the Conservative Party into a party that really does promote um, positive policies for the environment? So. I found that the, the conservative history sort of helped with that because, as you say, there have been so many examples down the ages of, of conservatives being effectively modernizers. And obviously it, it sort of frightens some conservative supporters when you say that, but I would say all the great conservative leaders were in a way, mod Mrs. Thatcher, the ultimate modernizer. She took the view that, you know, this country isn't finished. It isn't in terminal decline. If we make some important economic changes, we can have a great future. So I think you do draw a lot of strength from that. And um, and what about the thinkers uh, you mentioned in your in your um, autobiography, Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, uh, Lord Shaftesbury, William Wilberforce. Um, these were Tories of different types. I mean, obviously Burke would call himself a Whig all his life, but nonetheless, uh, to all intents and purposes, uh, after the French Revolution, he was a uh, a Tory. Do you think these figures uh, have still have useful things to say about modern conservatism? I do. I think um, 
you know, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's, it's true that people have only sort of focused too much on only one aspect of Adam Smith, rather than uh, looking what he ha had to say about um, about morality as well as um, economics. But I think they, I think all these thinkers have a part to help you understand how people reached their conclusions in the past, and that can hold lessons for you today when you're trying to grapple with, you know, modern. I mean, if, let's take the. You know, I, I would argue one of the sort of biggest issues for a country like Britain is how do you make sure that we are a opportunity meritocratic society and make a success of being a multiracial, multi-ethnic country. And, you know, that's going to need a lot of new things and new thinking, but there's a lot of things you can draw on from um, from Tory thinkers of the past. And I suppose, I mean, there's even a, a sort of Burkean sense one could... Uh, defend, I, he could well defend your vote blue, go green concept, couldn't he, as a... As a uh... Of course, I mean, I, the Conservatives, of course, Conservatives should be environmentalists. We care about what is passed on to future generations and what is more important than um, the, the, the health of the, the planet. And, you know, uh, so I think, I think, you know, there's a natural affinity. And that, what infuriated me was that there was a time in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when you know, the environmental issues were being seen as sort of issues that the left were going to deal with through state control and conservatives were absent from the battlefield and those that were on the battlefield were sort of included the climate deniers and, and all of it. Whereas actually there's a lot of conservative philosophical thinking and actually good conservative policy about using pricing and markets, startups and tech in order to solve these problems. So I thought it was a classic example where you needed to take your your philosophy and your thinking and your past history and apply it to the current challenge. And actually, um, I mean, Britain today is, is, you know, we're one of the success stories in this regard. I'm always telling my daughter that, that you know, don't complain too much because carbon emissions here, they're not lower than 1988, they're lower than 1898. So, you know, we're doing, we're doing an okay job. Um, and I get quite a lot of conservative parties around the world now saying to, to me, well, what did you do and how can we learn some of these lessons? Because we're getting left behind and the left is grabbing hold of this issue and doing it wrong. What uh, book or uh, biography or, uh, or history book are you reading at the moment? I'm just assuming that you are, but everybody, I ask this of all of my guests and every single one of them is, so don't tell me it's a novel. Um, no, I, am. I, I kind of, now with a bit more time on my hands, um, I'm trying to sort of fill in a lot of the historical periods that I, I don't know so much about. So I'm reading a book about the Anglo-Saxons at the moment. Um, and uh, I, I've just, I'm afraid, got to the end and the Battle of Hastings and everything that follows from that. But actually one forgets how many... Who's it by? Of, What's it called? It's Mark Morris, he's called. It's just called the right. Anglo-Saxons. I, I mean, I've enjoyed it, actually, because you, you forget how much that the Anglo-Saxons left behind in terms of, you know, everything from Canterbury to... Edward the Confessor's decisions about Westminster, which we talked about earlier. Um, you know, the historic counties, um, apart from Ted Heath's terrible <laughs> in the 70s, but you know. Um, yeah. uh, so I'm enjoying that. Um, I've just finished um, Robert Harris, not a history book, I've just finished Robert Harris's book about um, the pursuit of the regicides, um, all those who signed Charles I. Yes, well, that's it's his. Yeah, that counts because it's a historical novel. I ought to have mentioned. Yes, but also I didn't see it, it, for some reason endlessly at school and university. I did the same period of history. It was always the the nineteenth and twentieth century. So I've I've had to sort of teach myself 
um, Tudors and Stuarts um, and, and, uh, and, and the history of the Civil War, which I'm really, the more I read about that, the more it sort of draws you in. Yes, yeah. Um, so plenty, plenty more gaps to fill in. And your own book I enjoyed because <laughs> actually, again, the 18th century, I hadn't um, spent enough time on. And uh, I'm enjoying that. I'm, I'm still haven't quite finished, I'm afraid, but I, I, I've got so depressed about the loss of America that I've had to, um, I've had to take a pause. <laughs> it gets worse, unfortunately, <laughs> especially the, the last chapter, poor man. Uh, so the other question I ask all my, um, all my guests is, uh, what's your favourite what if? Uh, is there a counterfactual that you like to uh, to look back in in, in um, history? Oh well, there are lots. I mean, there are some quite a lot of recent ones. You know. No, no, no. Forget about those. We're we're. No, I think the one the the one um, I was always fascinated by when I first started studying history properly was what would have happened if Gladstone's first Home Rule Bill had passed? Was there a way of um, avoiding so much of what subsequently happened? Um, and I think it's it's unanswerable. Um, sorry, you, there's, there's no, you know, it was a very obviously badly thought through bill and probably wouldn't have worked because it hadn't thought through all the different things that need to happen. But I think it's a fascinating what if that if we'd tried to accommodate um, the sense of Irish nationhood earlier, would there have been different outcomes? So I've always enjoyed that one. Like everyone who's ever studied history, the whole should we have acted differently with the First World War. Uh, I think it's a fascinating, I'm, I'm convinced we did the right thing, Belgium's neutrality and all the rest of it, but there's a, I love, it's a fascinating argument to get into. About at what, what point, at what point could we have headed it off that could we particularly have headed it off uh, in, in, in 1914 or does it have to be done much earlier uh, with regard to our entente with France or I mean, how on Well, there's also an argument, you know, I think Neil Ferg in Neil Ferguson's book, that there's an argument that if Britain had had a different approach to continental security in the run-up to the First World War, um, and had a larger standing army, and you know, had been clearer about what we would and wouldn't do, maybe that would have engendered different thinking. I mean, it's very hard to know now, but I, it's it's one of those what ifs that's so big because so many consequences followed from the First World War that I think it's one that one can't stop thinking about. I remember once actually. Um, I had, had had dinner with um, Enoch Powell before he died, and uh, the, the person he was, his biographer Richard Ritchie said, "Enoch, you think that we should have not had unconditional surrender with the Germans at the end of the Second World War? We should have made peace earlier. When?" And he looked and he said, "1917," <laughs> which I thought was a, yes. which was well, a classic no. powlite, classic yes. sort of powlite, different <laughs> answer to a different question. But it also stuck in my mind as a yes. Um, that is not my view. I hasten to add. No, no, no. It's not mine point. either. That's that would have been utterly disastrous to have made yes. peace in 1917. Yes. But uh, having said that, the peace that we did make couldn't have been that much more disastrous as well. But uh, I mean, it was on the table in in 19 December 1916 as well. Um, so there was a chance. What do you think about the Home Rule? What if though? Where do you, where do you I, I'm afraid I think you get massive, you get civil war up and down the country in 1886. Even 1886, um, you definitely get that in 1892 or... or oh no, um, by, by 1886 you got Lord Randolph Churchill saying, you know, I'll still fight I'll still and I'll fight, still be right. right. And I think yeah. it would, yeah. I, it would have fought and I'm, I think you'd have got, you've got terrible bloodshed in 1886. Anyhow, there we go. Uh, David, thank you very much indeed. That's a great... Uh, 
great um, conversation. I've hugely My enjoyed pleasure. it. It's good to take part. What was Condi Rice? Is what it? Um, the Lenin getting off the train at the Finland station in 1917 and uh, and getting assassinated oh. as he steps off the train. Yeah, it was a great one. I was, I was amazing, actually. Funny enough, both the same year as well as 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 Enoch yes. Powell's. Interesting. Yes. yes. All right, year, right. 1917. And on that bombshell, I will uh, say thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye bye. On the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, I'll be speaking to Michael Gove, who's that rare thing in politics, a genuine intellectual, but also an extremely effective minister. He served in various cabinets under today's guest David Cameron, and also Theresa May and Boris Johnson. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.